Isaiah, Jeremiah, and so forth, the minor prophets, the last 12, gathered together in one scroll in the Hebrew Bible, the Book of the Twelve. Just so you know, we come to Amos, the end of Amos and chapter 9. Um, uh, there is a difference between preaching and teaching. Uh, teaching is often, um, you know, more, more general. It can be done in a variety of ways. Preaching, the uh, authoritative heralding of the, God of, uh, of the Word of God. Um, and uh, uh, there's some blending of the two. But tonight we'll be a little more in the teaching realm. Just so you know, um, I, I, I often do uh, a bit more heralding on matters of prophecy, and I'm going to be trying to tune myself down a little tonight, hopefully. So, uh, we come to Amos chapter 9, and uh, we read these words. Behold, the eyes of the Lord God are on the sinful kingdom, and I will destroy it from the face of the earth, yet I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob, says the Lord. For surely I will command and will sift the house of Israel among all nations as grain is sifted in a sieve. Yet not the smallest grain shall fall to the ground. All of the sinners of my people shall die by the sword who say the calamity shall not overtake nor confront us. On that day I will raise up the tabernacle of David which has fallen down and repair its damages. I will raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who does this thing. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows seed. The mountains shall drip with sweet wine, and the hills shall flow to it. I will bring back the captives of my people Israel. They shall build the waste cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink wine from them. They shall also make gardens and eat fruit from them. <coughs> I will plant them in their land, and no longer shall they be pulled up. From the land I have given them, says the Lord your God. Well, let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we pray that you would open to us these uh, dark things of old, that we especially, uh, having the light of Christ to shine upon these things, may understand more and more the fulfillment of your purposes for the world in Jesus, in whom we pray. Amen. Well, biblical prophecy tends to make people sit up and listen. Uh, everyone seems to have an insatiable desire to know the future. People are just naturally curious about it, and I suppose... That's why fortune tellers have, in the history of the world, always made a good business. But we are called to study prophecy, not merely to satisfy some curiosity of ours about the future, but to live now in light of the future then. So large sections of the Bible are given over to prophecies of the future in order to teach and motivate us to live appropriately for the Lord today. If it's not having this impact on your life, perhaps you're learning it for the wrong reasons or in the wrong way. The passage I read to you from Amos is given in the second, excuse me, the eighth century BC to the northern kingdom of Israel. Amos is actually a prophet from the south, a good old boy, a farmer, 
not the prophet, not a prophet, he says, or the son of a prophet. He, he's a, a prophet in bib overalls. He comes up to the north and he says, thus saith the Lord. A prophecy that uh, the people of the kingdom of Israel urgently needed to hear because the Lord had given that nation blessing upon blessing, but they had misused God's blessings. The richer they got, the greedier and more materialistic they became. The more power they gained, the more they oppressed others, especially the poor and the weak of the land, as Amos is not shy to say. God was therefore uh, going to send his people into exile in Babylon, uh, the sinful nation we, uh, excuse me, uh, in Assyria, the sinful nation we read about earlier, uh, not merely to judge his people, but ultimately to purify them, right? Assyria, now they are going to go. But, verse 8, I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob, for surely I'll command and I will sift the house of Israel among the nations, as grain is sifted in a sieve. And the smallest grain shall fall to the ground. The sinners of my people shall die by the sword. Those who say the calamity shall not overtake us. So uh, God has a purpose in this exile. He's, he's going to um, uh, judge those who need judgment. But judgment is not the last word. He is going to refine and purify his people. And at the end, he says, I'm, I'm going to bring them back. The Lord will preserve a remnant. and He will bring them back and settle them in their land. And this uh, is joined to a glorious hope you notice. In fact, the hope spoken of by all the prophets, that in those days, as he puts it here, the uh, David's fallen tent or tabernacle shall be set up again or rebuilt. The son of David, in other words, shall come as king. And when he comes, he's going to bring blessings far as the curse is found, as we sing this time of year, right? In this passage, we're given a glorious description of what will come to pass in those latter days. Not only will Israel return to the land, but then the Gentiles will be called by the name of the Lord. We're given also a vision of peace and prosperity, so rich that the plowman overtakes the reaper. What do you mean the plow plowman overtakes the reaper? Well, it, the, the point is, the harvest is so massive and so long that it will overlap with the next, next planting season. They're, they'll still be gathering in the rich fruit from one harvest while the person's planting the next. There's, there's just this overwhelming, abundant supply of food and wine. That's the, that's the picture of those days. Um, this prophecy includes many of the common themes or motifs that we've considered in the last two weeks as we're doing this short study. Um, the promise here given of the son of David, of the restoration of Israel, and a hint that's more fully developed later, I'll show you, of the salvation of the world and the peace and the prosperity that will bring. And as you'll know from many other prophets, these wonderful themes are often given in such terms, in fact, usually in considerably more glory and detail. Amos is rather short as these things go. Uh, we'll be reading a variety of passages in Isaiah in the season also for calls to worship in the morning, and you'll find these themes and the, the reign of the son of David and the prince of peace uh, and, and the wonders that will bring to the world to, to be given um, again and again in beautiful description. Well, if 
part of this prophet uh, sounds familiar, this prophecy sounds familiar, it's because it's cited by James, word for word, in Acts chapter 15, as, as he cites this passage to cinch his argument that the Gentiles don't need to be circumcised and keep the law of Moses. That basically you don't have to become um, a follower of the law of Moses to be a Christian. Um, this is a little confusing for us on this side of it, but uh, the point, the, the, there was a major question whether Gentiles as Gentiles could come into the church and be called by God's name. Well, here it is. In fact, you might want to look there with me as there's a very slight variation in spelling, which I need to explain if you're wanting to have a more full understanding of that prophecy of Amos. Here in Acts chapter 15, uh, verse 14, we, we find this quoted. There, there's this big uh, meeting to, in Jerusalem with the apostles and elders to discuss whether or not Gentiles, as Gentiles, can, be, can come to the church. And uh, we pick up in verse 14. Simon, Peter, has declared how God at first visited the Gentiles to take out for them a people for his name. And with this... The words of the prophets agree, just as it's written, quoting Amos 9. After this, I'll return and will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. I will rebuild its ruins and I will set it up so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. Even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who does these things. Uh, known to God from eternity are all of his works, and therefore I judge that we shouldn't trouble those who are among the Gentiles who are turning to God. So uh, to explain now, this is not exactly the, the same thing. There's nothing about Edom here, but there is something about mankind. Uh, what's going on there? Well, Edom, the nation, and Adam, man or mankind, are spelled exactly the same in Hebrew. It's a variation on the vowels, which aren't written in the original. You have to tell by context. Adam or Edom. Uh, the uh, Greek translation of the Old Testament took it as mankind. Hence the translation here. The, uh, the Jews uh, who later added vowel points to the Old Text took it as Edom. And that's what our Old Testament is based on, that Hebrew text. So there we go. And there's also one very slight change. You, you know that the, the Hebrew text is, is virtually letter perfect from, from the Dead Sea Scrolls and so forth. But there actually is one very slight change here. One little letter is changed in the modern text, uh, modern Jewish text from a yod, uh, from, sorry, from a dalet to a yod, which can look almost the same when it's small. And the Dead Sea Scrolls uh, actually have this, this reading from Acts 15, the, the, uh, the older reading. So it's, it's true either way, but just to explain why it's different, uh, you can take it as Adam or as mankind, and you could take it as possess or as seek. And uh, so the older text, it seems, that's reflected here in Acts 15 uh, is to be relied upon uh, I hate to, hate to explain all these text questions in, in some detail and leave you kind of halfway, but I, I hope what I'm trying to say is what we have here in Acts 15 represents the 
older Hebrew text and uh, we can see if we rely that the prophecy is so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. And that's why it's cinching the argument here. The Gentiles are coming in. And the Gentiles in the passage are called by the name of the Lord. And the prophecy was that the nation should come, not as Jews, but as Gentiles. And so from this passage in Amos, uh, we find the matter solved. Well, this passage from Amos is very similar, as you'll know, to a great many passages throughout the prophets. I'm not going to say a whole lot more about this specific prophecy. I'll, I'll, I'd like to step back now and think with you um, when we read these things about the nations coming to seek the Lord, all the nations of the earth and of the, of the great blessings that that should bring and the repentance of Israel. Um, when will these things be? When will these things be? We find the themes that we read in Amos in the Psalms, in the major prophets, in the minor prophets. It's, it's clearly again and again held before us as the hope of the messianic age. But when? That's what we want to know. My first question. You'll notice that a number of events are brought together in the prophecy of Amos. And it's as though they were all taking place in a single day, in a single moment in history. It is as though one day the Messiah comes and Israel is brought back to the land and there's repentance toward God and the nations come to the Lord and there is peace and fabulous prosperity in the earth as if it were on a single day. Um, but uh, I, I will point out that this is very, very typical of the prophets, where it seems that what we have here is the whole portrait of the future brought together in a single glimpse, as though, you know, it's a, uh, a painting, um, a, a portrait in which uh, everything is, is, is represented from, from uh, the whole age in a, in a single glimpse, sometimes called the prophetic perspective or prophetic foreshortening for you budding theologians out there, prophetic foreshortening, very typical of prophecy. You remember just a few weeks ago, we considered the first great prophecy in the Bible from Genesis 3, verse 15, where the whole history of the world is compressed in a single sentence, namely, he, the seed of the woman, will bruise your head and you will bruise his heel. Well, how simple that is. And from that little statement, we could imagine a, 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 a fulfillment that would all happen in a single day. Uh, very interestingly written, we, we talked about that, but, but in fact, this promise unfolds in a succession of great events that are separated from each other by long periods of time. The Son of Man has come to destroy the works of the devil. He will come again and do so especially. This, uh, this fulfillment is even now being fulfilled in you and me. Romans 16, 20, the, the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly, he writes to the Romans. Uh, it, it seems to be just uh, a snapshot in time, but as it is, it, it's the whole history of the world in one sentence. This is very typical of prophecy. 
And I, and I know that some of you went through Isaiah, and you must have thought this in chapter after chapter, as, as, you, as you see all these things put together, in the, uh, is, is seemingly in, in one moment. And, and, and Christians have tried then to, 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 to open this up and to get some kind of timetable from this, right? I, I want to underscore this. Christians have tried to obtain from biblical prophecy the one thing that it characteristically is not willing to give you. Namely, a timetable, table, chronological specifics. Right? It wants to tell you what's coming and the glories of those things and the purposes of God and, and to unfold his wisdom and his glory and how you should live. And, and it's like the one thing that we want, namely a timetable or a chronological pathway, with very few exceptions, is not given. Uh, it is in Daniel, I suppose, and a couple other places. But generally speaking, the whole history of the future is brought together by the prophets in a unity. And here, as here, the prophet typically just tells you the future in one glance. In many prophecies of the coming of the Messiah, for instance, you have mixed together as if they would all come at the same moment. Things that belong to his first coming and things that belong to his second coming and everything in between. Um, for example, we, we sometimes find the coming of the Messiah, the salvation of the nations, and the judgment of the world, as though that was all happening in one afternoon. But the, the great prophetic themes stretch out across the age, and they serve to unify the Bible's teaching and to give us some idea of what we're, what we're doing. So this is what I want to tell you. When will these things be? We don't actually know the when. Um, they, they are brought together in a single unity. Some things, it seems, have already been fulfilled. Some things, it seems, have yet to have their final fulfillment. But this, this causes us some confusion. It causes me confusion. If you got it all figured out, you can see me after, and you, maybe you can preach this. Okay? All right. Um, second question, what are we waiting for then? Um, what in this passage then has yet to be fulfilled? Uh, what does this passage and the many passages like it tell us to expect to happen? Um, what will happen in this world before the last day? Now, this is a question that has frankly perfect, perplexed the church in all ages and caused heated disagreements among even the best of scholars. We appear to have in the prophet Amos a glorious hope. Uh, a glorious hope that is often called in theology the millennium, which has nothing to do with that falcon or anything like that. The term millennium uh, comes from Revelation chapter 20, uh, the Latin word meaning a period of a thousand years. And you know how we just celebrated the second millennium since Christ in the 21st century a few years ago. Well, we read in Revelation 20 about this angel that comes down from heaven with a key to the bottomless pit, and a great chain in his hand, and he laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and cast him into the bottomless pit, and shut him up, and set a seal on him, so that he should not deceive the nations anymore, till the thousand years were finished. And after these things, he must be released for a little while. All right, thousand year period in which Satan is bound in order that he may no longer deceive the nations. Um, called the millennium for that, for that reason. And uh, so uh, this sounds pretty good, Satan, Satan bound. Uh, is that now? Is that coming? Is that what's gonna happen when Christ returns? Oh, it's a major point of disagreement. 
And uh, that one passage in Revelation that talks about the millennium, only in a few places, a thousand years, but that one, that phrase becomes associated then with a huge number of prophecies from Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, uh, Hosea, Acts, uh, uh, sorry, um, uh, the, the, the prophets, and more. And so this is where I'm going to have to switch more into teaching mode for a few minutes, trying not to be as dogmatic as I usually am, and uh, to, to try to give you some understanding because as I was talking to a friend just a couple weeks ago, uh, some people don't know that there is it, there are any options. They're, they're, they were taught one system of interpretation as though it were the only option out there. Uh, I don't want to do that. I don't want to put that upon you. I would like at least to introduce to you uh, various ways of understanding Amos chapter 9. When is the period of peace, prosperity, the salvation of the world, the repentance of Israel, and the other things that again and again and again are, are predicted in the Bible. Well, let me introduce to you the discussion this way. Some people expect that we must wait for this prophecy to be fulfilled, at least in its fullness, until Jesus returns. That Amos sees what happens at the second coming of Christ. And Christ returns, he establishes a kingdom, he reigns for a thousand years, according to this view. And in this thousand years, all these things happen. The Jews turned back to God. The Gentiles, the nations, are converted in mass. Peace, prosperity, uh, purity, the Satan being bound, all the joys of the world are uh, ringing, except uh, a little bit at the end as we read about there, and then the end will come. So this is called pre-millennialism, pre-millennialism, because Jesus comes back before the millennium. Jesus comes back before. We are living before the millennium, and Jesus is going to return, and then all of uh, uh, this is going to be fulfilled. The Jews repent, the nations turn to God, peace, prosperity. We're not waiting for anything more to come until the Lord returns. The Lord can come back any moment. That's called premillennialism, looking forward to what happens when Jesus comes again. And so, according to this school, many, many people read the Old Testament prophets as though they are talking about what is yet future to us. However, some instead... Look at this same prophecy uh, of Amos and others like it and say, no, 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 it's already had its fulfillment in the Messianic age. This has all been fulfilled since Jesus came the first time. This is talking about now, the church age, and that there's nothing more that we should expect until Christ returns. Uh, Jesus can still, yes, return at any time because these prophecies have been fulfilled. And when he comes back, there's no thousand-year reign. There's no millennial reign of Jesus. The end will come. Jesus can return at any time. The prophecies have been fulfilled. There is no millennium to look forward to, a view that is called amillennialism. It describes what has come into the world already. And then when Jesus returns, that will be the end. That will be the day that the world will come to judgment. A third group of people. 
think that reading Amos 9, well, some of these things have been fulfilled. Jews are back in the land, for instance. Some of these things have not yet been fulfilled. Certainly not fully. The, the nations have not all turned to the Lord and sought the Lord. And the uh, blessings uh, upon the earth uh, have not come to fruition. Maybe partially. But these things must happen before Jesus returns. You following me here? So that uh, if Jesus has died for men from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, that these must be called in time by the preaching of the gospel before Jesus returns. And that means that Jesus can't come back today. If you're keeping score of the first two views, they expect Jesus to come back at any time, or that he can come back at any time. According to this third view, Jesus simply cannot come back today. Why? Because he has not fulfilled all that he was sent to do, to be salvation to the nations. Jesus will come back after these things are fulfilled, after the millennium, hence it's called post-millennialism, looking forward to what happens in this age before Christ returns. These are the three basic views of this and many similar prophecies. Premillennialism, which says that all these things will be fulfilled after Jesus comes. Amillennialism that says these things have been fulfilled since Jesus came. And postmillennialism that these things will be fully fulfilled before Jesus comes again. Clear as mud? As I said, premillennialism and amillennialism have this in common. They both teach that Jesus can return today, the imminent return. Uh, people of that persuasion often say, well, if the Lord tarries, dot, dot, dot. Postmillennialism says, nope, prophecy has to be fulfilled. So it hasn't been fulfilled yet. The Jews called, the nations turning to the Lord, hasn't happened. And that means Jesus can't come today. So let me give you a little more comment now that you've gotten the basic idea. Uh, premillennialism was very popular in the early church and then interestingly all but disappeared but made a huge resurgence in the 19th century and it, which has continued to this day and pretty much all the prophecy conferences that you see all the popular books that come out are in the premillennial school of things this view takes prophecy in general more literally although there's things that everybody has to interpret figuratively it's more of an emphasis and according to this view, Amos is describing a future kingdom that Jesus will bring when he returns and reigns for a thousand years. If you're a premillennialist, well, you'll be happy to claim a number of early church fathers like Justin Martyr, Irenaeus, Tertullian. In fact, Irenaeus in his youth sat at the feet of Polycarp, and Polycarp was a student of the Apostle John. So if Irenaeus was a premill, it must be because Polycarp told him that John was himself a premill. Right? And uh, not only do you have the early church fathers, you might have, uh, uh, maybe glad to know that Robert Murray McShane and Andrew Bonner, the celebrated Scots Free Churchman, held this, as did Charles Spurgeon, that modern prince of preachers who, you know, makes it just about every Sunday into one of my sermons, right? Uh, he also held this view. So, some wonderful people. 
the, the second view I described, amillennialism, emphasizes that the prophecies have been fulfilled in the church and uh, will um, perfectly be, be fulfilled in heaven, but basically the promise of peace among the nations, for instance, uh, is that which we, we wait for. But, but, but Jesus can come back anytime because those prophecies are fulfilled, more spiritually speaking, here in the earth. Like the nations turning to God? Well, the nations have turned to God, more or less. Uh, this has been fulfilled in this age. If you're an amillennialist, you have on your side a number of heavyweights. Uh, Augustine, um, in fact, making matters worse for you pre-mills out there, he, Augustine was first a pre-mill, and then upon further study, he changed his mind. Okay, uh, Luther, uh, Calvin, at least on many texts, perhaps inconsistently, but at least on many texts, is an amillennialist. Abraham Kuyper, I mentioned this morning, uh, Bob Inc., the, many of the great Dutch theologians of the last hundred years, uh, Warfield, the, the Princeton School, probably the majority of Reformed people today hold this, probably. Uh, neither Luther nor Calvin expected any revival among the Jews, for instance, and their interpretation of Romans 11 has become the standard interpretation of the amillennial school. I wrote a paper for my professor in seminary about Romans 11 and said, look, uh, Israel there has to be national Israel. It can't just be the church. And uh, he marked it all up. He gave all these other reasons why I was wrong, uh, and amillennialist. So anyway, all right. The third view, which as I've given away, is the one that I hold, is called postmillennialism. It teaches that more has to take place here and now in this age. I was a little uh, forthright about my belief about that last week, but uh, since, as I say, Christ Christ has has died for people out of every tribe, tongue, and nation. Since the prophecy to Abraham from the very beginning was that in you all the families of the church of the world shall be blessed, uh, it looks for the spread of the gospel to the ends of the earth before the end can come. Now, um, uh, there, 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 there has been an apostasy uh, at its heels, but we, we do look for the, the uh, future to include the salvation of the nations. Um, and therefore, Paul as Paul writes to the Thessalonians in his day, uh, the day of the Lord is not at hand. Let no one deceive you. That day will not come, he says, unless the falling away comes first and the son of man, son of, uh, man of sin is revealed and so, so forth. Uh, Paul speaks of prophecies of Israel returning to the Lord and the nations uh, coming as not yet having been fulfilled in Romans 11. So these are the things that post-millennialists look for. And by the way, uh, there, there are some um, famous post-millennialists uh, out there who uh, you'd be glad to know if you are one. You, you, you share the belief with John Owen, Richard Baxter, Thomas Boston, Jonathan Edwards, John Wesley, most pioneer missionaries like William Carey, David Livingston, and a uh, great many other luminaries. It's been a particularly fruitful um, uh, belief for missionaries to get people going. And you see why. If the nations are yet to be converted before Christ comes, well, let's get going. So pioneer missionaries tend to have tended to have this view. Now, uh, there are some important variations I had thought about telling you, but the time is going on, so I'm going to skip all that. And I'm going to try to get to the cash value of these things. Why does this matter again? Um, what, is the, what is the purpose? Um, 
Well, um, the, the hope that we have does affect our engagement in the world, right? What we think the Lord is going to do affects what we are going to do today. I mentioned before the matter of the, the conquest of Canaan. The Lord said, um, I'm going to bring you into the land. You're going to have to go face to face with your enemies, but wherever you put your foot, you're going to conquer. I'm going to give that land to you, so get going. Um, because they understood the future, they knew what to do in the present. It was an example. After rehearsing all the political ups and downs, MacArthur makes this comment, such political preoccupations of Christians are ironic. Um, considering the dominant premillennial eschatology of conservative evangelicalism. What's all that about? See, look, if you don't have much hope for this world, then why are we doing all this in politics? MacArthur says, our end times theology tells us that until Christ returns, nothing can or will fix this crumbling world system. So, uh, MacArthur, uh, dear faithful man, he has a certain view about the future. Nothing's going to work. Uh, the, the politics is a losing game. This is what the Bible says. And, and therefore, we need to do what we ought to be doing. Um, as Hal Lindsey put it in his premillennial book in the 1970s, we should be living like people who don't expect to be around much longer. God has sent us to be fishers of men and not to clean up the fishbowl. All right. Well, I agree that we are, of course, to be fishers of men, but if you don't clean up the fishbowl, what do you get? Dead fish. And uh, if Jesus is not going to return soon, and Christians then, or uh, violence, corruption, and justice don't get involved, uh, we may expect more darkness and destruction to increase. And so you see how one's hope or hopelessness might affect things like our engagement in this world system. If our theology tells us that nothing can or will fix this crumbling world system, quote from MacArthur, we don't get involved. If we think that, uh, no, from Zion will go forth the law and uh, that uh, nations will, uh, what does Isaiah say here? Um, uh, nation will learn the Lord's ways. We ought to be more engaged, uh, believing that we will have some effect. Uh, in his book, The Puritan Hope, uh, Ian Murray traces the effect of the hope of prophecy in the church in launching the great missionary enterprise. People came to a belief in general, many people came to the belief that the nations would be converted, and so they said, let's get going. But then by the end of the 19th century, things were changing on the mission field, um, and foreign missions began to change its investment Previ previously. We, we had things like schools and seminaries and uh, mission stations, e even hospitals, uh, right? Our, our church has all those things. Uh, being an older church, because there was a historical belief that the continents had many, many people who had yet to hear the, the name of Jesus, but they would hear it, and a great many of them would believe. And if you're going to reach a, a continent, you're going to have to have some infrastructure, like training pastors, teaching people to read, uh, like uh, having some, some space to do that. So there was a huge investment in missionary infrastructure and the kind of initiatives and institutions that would reach a continent. 
by the end of the 19th century, there was a change, and Hodge writes, there was almost an exclusive emphasis on the conversion of individual souls. Like, we don't need to be building stuff. We need to be getting out there and telling people the gospel as fast as we can. And there was a, a change in philosophy. So in these and many other ways that I could tell you this evening, uh, there's a great deal of importance to these, uh, the, these, uh, un the, our understanding. It affects how we engage in the world, how we do missions, what we ourselves do when we read the paper, whether we are discouraged and begin to say with frustration, oh, what is the point? Um, I suppose there have been Christians in every age that have been frustrated and, and looked at the newspaper or whatever they had and said, what is the point? But I would like to close with one man's um, assessment of Europe from a recent book. Here's one man's assessment of Europe. Quote, at the end of the year, most men in Western Europe felt exceedingly gloomy about the future. Christian civilization appeared to be shrinking in area and dividing into hostile units as its sphere contracted. Institutions were decaying. Well-meaning people were growing cynical or desperate. Many intelligent men, for want of something better to do, were endeavoring to escape the present through the study of the pagan past. Islam was now expanding at the expense of, Christ of Christendom. He goes on to say that uh, the Christians were expecting the end of the world would come at any time and that European Christianity itself was in heavy decline, almost totally corrupt, and just would not endure another generation. That was Europe in the year 1492. They, they looked at the world and they just couldn't make sense. They said probably this is the very, this is the very end. But of course, uh, where they looked at the world and saw futility and concluded wrongly that the day of the Lord was at hand, they were at the very end of what is sometimes called the dark ages. Maybe it was darkest before the dawn in some ways, because when the light was about to break forth through the printing of God's word and the reformation of religion, and it would be the transformation on the face of Europe, and not just Europe now, the, the whole world. I don't know what the future holds in our lifetimes. I don't know what it holds for the West in general. But I do know that the job of the Christian is not to take our marching orders from the newspaper, but to seek to interpret the word of God and to occupy or to keep busy until I come, as Jesus says. This I know, God's salvation will spread to the ends of the earth one way or the other uh, by the preaching of the good news. And therefore, we conclude making our prayer, thy kingdom come. Let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, we do pray that the great difficulties of prophecy would uh, not overwhelm us or the great discouragements of living in the world as we await their final fulfillment in Jesus. We do know that he is the victor and that your salvation has come to the world and is coming to the world in him, and may it continue. May the, uh, the nations of the earth be blessed in the seed of Abraham, even as you promised so many years ago. We confess again our um, uh, own uh, difficulties in reading the dark prophecies of old. We pray that you would grant light according to our need, but uh, knowing that our labor is never in vain in the Lord, we pray that you would also encourage our hearts in the evil day.